0: This morning is from the New Testament, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and I'm going to read from chapter 9, beginning at verse 6 and reading through verse 16. This is only a part of the passage that I want to look at with you this morning, but here are some of it, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace. God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable or inexpressible gift. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, I would like to talk with you about money and specifically about what we have come to call the offering. You know that in our church, as in most churches, there is a point in the service where ushers will pass the offering plate and money is put into it. Why do we do that? It's been about 10 years since I have taught on this subject. Um, I've talked about money several times when it has come up in a text as we've worked through a text, Malachi, Luke, Acts, etc., But it's been a long time since we've looked specifically at church giving. There have been years here when uh, our church budget has had a shortfall because of a change in giving patterns. And it might be tempted to teach on giving at such a time. But I've resisted doing that because it might be perceived that the sermon is a commercial to make you give so that we can shore up our budget. But I don't want to do that. Um, Christian giving is under the broader heading of stewardship. It's part of both the individual's spiritual growth and also of the church's life. But we don't want to perceive a talk on giving as saving the budget or this is about the church. Money is a touchy subject, generally. What do you think is the number one area of conflict in marriages. Now, now that I've set it up, you know what the answer is. It's not how they communicate. It's not the physical relationship. It's not even the in-laws. It's not differences in how you load the dishwasher or squeeze your toothpaste. It is money. The number one source of conflict in marriages in our culture is money. I know of a long-standing dispute between two men in a church I used to be a part of They were related by marriage, but they were estranged for over a decade, and maybe still are, for all I know. Over what? Over a money issue between them. Money, we consider a private thing. I'm willing to bet that you don't know the income of anyone else in the church, except mine, because you vote on it every year. Now, I'm not saying that we should know or are obligated to share our income with one another. I'm just pointing out that we don't usually share that information. We have conversations about many things, but some things are private, and we consider money to be one of those things. For some people, money is tied to their perceptions of the church. The church just wants my money. And people might feel obligated or guilted into giving a little money when the offering plate comes by. uh, Whether you're in your own church or if you're a guest in the church or you're visiting someone else's church, you might just feel like you have to give. So the pairing up of church and money conjures up all kinds of emotions and thoughts for us. So I'd like to say some things to you this morning about what the Bible says about giving. And some of these things might surprise you. They did surprise me. And I'll be forthright with you. I'm not preaching in order to get you to give more, but I am hoping that many of you will give more, not for the church's sake, but for your own sake. So you hear about why in a minute. I want to begin in the Old Testament. And there we see the practice of what was called tithing. Tithe just means 10%. Tithing was a common practice in the ancient world. Biblically, we see it in the life of Abraham, who gave to the priest-king Melchizedek 10% of the spoils of a battle that Abraham had fought and won. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, promised to God 10% of everything that God would bless him with. Several centuries later, when God, through Moses, gave the formal law... To Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, God only then made tithing a requirement and put some structure around it. God commanded the people to give a tithe of their produce and of their flocks. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is one of the major passages in the Old Testament, and I'd like to share that with you. This is what God told his people. He said, you shall command you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the lord your god in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there you shall eat the tithe of your grain of your wine and of your oil and of the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the lord your god always and if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household. Now, when I read that this week, some things immediately stood out to me, some interesting things to notice. First, that part of the tithe was for the person himself. He and his household were to eat a meal from their own tithe. It was not simply given, was not simply dropped into the plate. They got to eat from it. And if the tabernacle and later the temple were some distance away, no problem. They'd sell the tithe take the money, and when they arrived, they could use the money to buy whatever they wanted to eat, including, by the way, strong drink. How many of you would have thought that God would let them do that? Strong drink, if they wanted, whatever they wanted, and they would have a meal. That's the first thing that surprised me, that it was for them, at least partially. Second, that the eating of the tithe was that, in God's words, you may learn to fear the Lord, always. Now, fearing God in this context means revering him, giving unqualified allegiance to him, and eating from their own tithe became for them an act of worship. It would somehow contribute to their awe and their adoration of God. And by eating this meal, they would be reminded that God alone was the owner of all things and that everything that they had had come to them via the hand of God. God owned it all and they, at best, were tenants of the land and stewards of what they had. They were absolutely dependent on him for all things and he was good enough to provide. And So it wasn't so much that they were giving to God 10% of what they had But that God was giving to them 90% of what he had. We need to think of it in those terms. We don't often, do we? So using part of the tithe to give themselves a meal, and doing so as an act of worship. And then thirdly, lest we think that this was purely an act of duty or obligation, this important sentence is also included. And you shall there before the Lord rejoice you and your household. This was not a sense of grudging obligation, but it was a joyful thing to be able to give and to share in what they had given. Now, you can't, of course, mandate joy. Joy, by its very nature, must just arise from a person. But there was cause to rejoice. God had blessed, and these people had the resources to give. And when God gives resources... There is joy. So a gift, themselves, a gift that they themselves got to share in that would foster their knowledge of and allegiance to God and that would be a joyful exercise. Isn't that the ideal behind our own giving? The passage then goes further. It says, And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So their meal that they ate was shared with a Levite. Among the tribes of Israel, God had not given to the tribe of Levi an allotted portion of land, because they were to be throughout the whole land serving the spiritual needs of the people and leading their worship life. So the tithe of the 12 tribes of Israel was how the community would support the tribe of Levi. This is how they supported the Levites in their work, and it's kind of like that with me. I've never thought of what you give to me as my salary, quite frankly. I think that you are supporting me in the work that I get to do here as kind of a local missionary in this congregation. And in addition to this ongoing support of the Levites by sharing this meal with them, God added another stipulation concerning the tithe. And this had to do with not only the Levites, but with others. At the end of every three years, God goes on to say, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your town. So have a storehouse for your tithe. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner or foreigner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hands, uh, work of your hands that you do. So for two years, people would bring their tithe to the place of worship, share the meal, and, and worship the Lord in that way. But on the third year, the tithe was designated for the Levites and those who otherwise had no provision. And by mandating the tithe in this way, God placed the responsibility for the care of those who needed care, square on the shoulders of those whom he had blessed with the resources that they had. The tithe became the Israelites' social program. So that was the essence of Old Testament tithing. It was a command, but not a burdensome one. It was a win-win for everybody. The worshiper joyfully sharing in his own gift, the spiritual ministers supported, and the underprivileged cared for. That was... That was tithing according to the law in the Old Testament. So imagine in our own churches, in our day, generous Christians whose giving is a joyful act of worship that fosters a reverence for God and sees the needs of people met. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And so in the New Testament, then, we see the practice of giving in a specifically Christian context. Not a people of God based on nationality, but a people of God centered around the person of Jesus Christ. And what do we see when we look at the New Testament? Uh, Three passages, two of which I'll visit very quickly, and then the one that we have read this morning. First, in the book of Acts, we see this description of the early church, the first generation of Christ followers. And we read, Now the full number of those who believed, were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, now Levites are giving, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Spontaneous, voluntary giving that meets the needs among them Of those who have need. Okay, no need to say more about this. It's a description of Christian giving that's self evident. Generosity was one of the marks of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The second biblical text is 1 Timothy chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is instructing Pastor Timothy what to remind the rich Christians among them in Ephesus, incidentally. Now who is this text for it's for the rich And who is that Most of us would not consider ourselves rich Most of us would say that we have what we need and maybe a little more If our household income is 30,000 the rich might be those whose income is 60,000 If your income is 60,000 the rich becomes those with an income of 100,000 or more if you make 100000 or more, you might think the rich are those who make a quarter million. If you make a quarter million, you might think that millionaires are rich. But very few people will think of themselves unrich unless they're swimming in money. And even those, if somebody's swimming in money in a bigger pool, they might not think that they are rich. A recent study in the United States concerning taxes paid according to income showed that a majority of people, get this, with an income of 250000 or more, thought of themselves as middle class. Here's some global stats for you. Um, Though purchasing power varies greatly throughout the world, more than half of the world lives on $2 per day or less, or about $700 a year. Now, with... Income across the world adjusted to be on par with the U.S. dollar. Canada is second in the world for income, wages. More than half of Canadian households have an annual income of, sorry, less than half, just less than half of Canadian households have an income of $23,000 or less. That means that most of us in this room this morning make twice as much or more of more than half of the households in our country. And that of nearly 200 countries in the world, we have an average income of more than everyone but one, and that is, of course, the U.S. So the rich of this present age that Paul talks about As we read it today, who are those rich? It's us. It is us sitting right here. So, what does this text say? It says, don't place your hope on wealth, but on God. It says that God has given you what you have in order to enjoy it. Isn't that wonderful? It says, to be generous, to be ready to share. Rich people are to be generous. I am to be generous. And now we turn to our passage today from 2 Corinthians. Uh, Again, I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, but the passage really begins in chapter 8. And here's the context. There is a great need among the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea, and the Macedonian church, a thousand miles away, is also poor and lacking resources. And Paul has already told the Macedonians that the Corinthians would give generously. And the Macedonians plead with Paul that they also be able to give, and that for them to be able to give would be doing them a favor. So now Paul, in this letter to the Corinthians, is telling them to make sure that they live up to his boast that they would be generous, because if they don't, Paul and the Corinthians would be embarrassed, so... I'll read this passage in its entirety, and we'll just notice some things along the way. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Paul and the Macedonians thought, that to have the opportunity to give was a gift of grace to them from God. God was doing them a favor by allowing them to give. And even in severe affliction and poverty, the joy of the Macedonians just overflowed and expressed itself in giving. And they gave even beyond their means. I have $500. I need $400 to live on. Well, I'll give 300 anyway. So they said, and they did it not under pressure, but they did it freely. And they gave of themselves to others because they had first given themselves to the Lord. Sam Houston was an American soldier and statesman in the 1800s. He was instrumental in bringing Texas into the Union of States. The city of Houston is named for him. And the great-grandfather of former president, Lyndon Johnson, led Sam Houston to faith in Jesus. And afterward, Sam Houston offered to pay half of the salary of the local minister. And somebody asked him why, and his response was this. When I was baptized, my pocketbook was baptized too. Spontaneous, generous giving is part of what happens to those who are have given their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on, accordingly we urged Titus who is going to go and collect the gift that was being uh, that the Corinthians were to give and then Titus would help deliver it to Jerusalem. So we urged Titus that as he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, it's crucial to notice here that this is not a command. Paul makes a point of saying that in the Old Testament, it was a command. It was mandated with certain parameters about it, about how it was to be used, but it was a command. Give, 10%. That's law. But after Jesus, giving is no longer a command, but giving just happens anyway. And here's why it happens. Because we are struck by the fact that Jesus set aside his glory to become born to a poor family to live an itinerant life with no possessions. And as he died, what possessions he did have, literally the clothes off his back, was divvied up between those who had killed him. And Paul says your generosity overflows out of your love because you know what Jesus did. And he did it so that you yourselves could gain a treasure. A treasure untold. Life, forgiveness, eternity, reconciliation with God. See, an awareness of the gospel leads necessarily to a concern for the needs of others, which leads necessarily to a generous giving. It just happens. And what's more, Paul says, it benefits you to give. Now, So, the point is not to be so generous that you end up being burdened yourself. I think that unless one is specifically instructed by God to give everything away, it is foolish to give so much away that you can't eat or have a place to live. Because then you just need others now to give to you. And yet, sacrificial giving is good. And sacrificial giving expresses several things. It expresses that we know it all belongs to God anyway. It expresses a trust in God to meet all of our need. It expresses a resolution that greed will not have a hold on our lives. Generosity kills greed. Again, Paul goes on. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, where the Corinthians were, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you were not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. I'm not going to wring this money out of you. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's that joy again. And you know what? If we can't give cheerfully, don't give at all. I mean that. The point is not that God needs our money. It's not to say that giving is not a discipline. Sometimes it is. But we build that discipline into our lives precisely because we know it matters that it is good, and we want to give. So the discipline, while intentional, is not grudging. It's still joyful. It's still cheerful. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which, through us, will produce thanksgiving to God. When you give, you don't lose anything, you're enriched. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible grace gift. What is this inexpressible gift? The surpassing grace of God on you. We were morally bankrupt. We had nothing, no merit of our own, no inherent goodness. But the grace of God is that Jesus died so that his infinite perfection might be credited to our account so that God no longer considers our sin, which we still so often choose to live in, let's not think of ourselves that God has made us righteous. He hasn't. We still sin, at least I do. I know most of you don't, but some of us do. But what God does do is takes Christ's righteousness and look at it and treat us according to his righteousness, not according to our unrighteousness. That's what God has done. That is the inexpressible gift, and our experience of that inexpressible gift compels us to give expressible gifts, support for those in need. So giving is a win-win-win. God is honored, needs are met, and we have joy. Now, so far, you may have noticed, I haven't said anything about giving to the church specifically, And nowhere does the New Testament directly mandate or speak of giving to your local church. What it does do is it describes, for example, the laying of gifts before the apostles' feet for the distribution of those among them who had need. It speaks of caring for the widows, particularly among those, uh, for those among the believers. And so we ask now, again, why do we take an offering as part of our worship every week? Why not just have all of you give how much and wherever you decide in your heart to give? There are several reasons why we do that here. And first, there is the biblical precedent in both the Old and New Testaments that the gifts and the tithes brought to the respective places of worship And the responsibility for the use of those gifts given to one's spiritual leaders. That's that's the context in which the Bible teaches and expresses, uh, describes, giving. These gifts would be used to support the needs among the givers, but occasionally it would go to a significant need far away, which is what we read about this morning. On occasion there would be a a special act of sort of extra generous giving in order to meet a specific need elsewhere. And here as well, in this congregation, we sometimes take an extra offering for the sake of something beyond our walls that we specifically want to pay attention to. Last Thanksgiving, for example, we took an offering and we gave half of it to International Justice Mission, an organization committed to things like freeing slavery um, in the third world, for example. About a quarter of our budget every year goes also to missionaries, the homes, to relief workers and those giving care to orphans. But most of our giving stays here. Why? Well, second then, reason to give. By saying that Thornhill Baptist Church is your spiritual home, at least, at a minimum, your giving comes to support the ministries and the priorities to which you have said then, these are also my ministries, my priorities. This is what I want to share in. Therefore, I will support them. And finances is, of course, one way, but I would also say with your time and your energy and your prayer, but with your finances as well. And then third. Biblical precedent, supporting what's going on in your home church. But we support the place where our spiritual life is nourished as well. If this is a place where you worship, where you are taught, and where your spiritual community is, then this is, logically, where your giving would be directed. Okay? Nobody here would go to a Flames game and then send your ticket money to the Canucks, no matter how big a fan of the Canucks you are. Um, Kara's this isn't in my manuscript Kara's parents live in the Vancouver area and uh, they had a friend there who had bought Canucks tickets season tickets and uh, one day he had left those on his dashboard, plain view and had gone somewhere when he came back to his car he found that somebody had smashed the window and reached in and left two more season tickets on the dashboard no that didn't really happen sometimes you just want to squeeze in a joke for its own sake now please understand me though I'm not mandating and the leadership of the church would not mandate that you give here you decide where and how much to give but we take an offering because it's logical that your giving would happen in your church home and we want you to know this morning also that the church doesn't just want your money you give it where you want. The money that we take in gets directed to what we think God is calling us to do. Okay? We don't make a big pile somewhere for us. So that's why we give. God's people have always given. Mandated in the Old Testament, but freely and cheerfully in the New. A tenth in the Old Testament, and sometimes beyond their means in the New. Grace is always more of an inspiration to give than law is. We give because we care about what is going on in the world. We want to support those who are doing ministry in the name of Jesus. And we give because we value our church home and the things that are priorities here. We give where we ourselves are nourished. And at risk of sounding self-promoting, it may be helpful for you to know that my wife and I practice what I am preaching. We support a couple of things outside for which we are concerned. But a regular and ongoing given is here, and that is very intentional on our part. Some other things are worth mentioning before I close. close. Again, it's worth saying a hundred times, tithing, giving a tenth, is not a New Testament mandate. But giving is according to what we in our conscience decide to give in proportion to what God has blessed us with. But I would suggest that a tenth is a good place to start. There are also, of course, some questions not answered or even asked in the Bible. Is a $1,000 vacation okay, but a $2,000 vacation is excessive? Well, that too is a question of conscience. But you get to decide it. Do I tithe according to my net or to my gross income? Well, again, that's not the point. If that needs to be asked, then we're trying to impose a boundary or a law or a rule where there is none. Again, for the people of Jesus, it is grace-giving, cheerful, voluntary giving. It's not rule-bound giving. And nor is this question asked in Scripture, or even us to ask it. The question, do I need this? Did I spend my money selfishly when I could have given more? You ask that and you might create guilt where no guilt is necessary. I read a book written by the head of a missions agency where he implied, but pretty obviously, that all income except what you absolutely needed to survive should be given away. He himself bought cheaper toothpaste so they could save a few extra cents to give away. Now, I admire that in that person. But to to sort of push or make feel guilty that we all need to do the very same thing, I don't think is healthy. Do I need this? Well, you know, we all have things that we don't need, and that is okay. A better question to ask is this. Where does my desire for this thing come from? Am I feeding an unhealthy desire by buying this thing? Do I have possessions or do possessions have me? That is an important question for us. The Bible doesn't doesn't speak specifically of those things. They're not asked and answered. But they're important questions to either ask or not ask, as the case would be. So then, what do we do with all of this? In light of all that we've heard, what do we do? Um, There's a process of thinking about all this, and I'll give you four. They're simple. First is consider the gospel. Paul said outright that the inspiration for the Corinthians giving was the simple knowledge that Jesus had come, gave away essentially everything in order to restore us to God. And it's an inexpressible gift that can help but make a person generous. We can't and shouldn't give purely from an, I guess I'm supposed to give, mindset. And if that's your mindset, then what is needed is to consider the gospel. And not to give until you've done that, I would say. Consider the gospel. Secondly, consider your resources. Ask the question, what do I have? How has God blessed me? And Spend a little time reflecting on this. But it's a, it's a pretty simple question to find an answer to. What has God given me? Third, then consider your actual giving. Again, not a hard question. You could probably answer it in the next 10 seconds. How much do I give? To whom do I give it and how much? And then fourth, Having the gospel in mind and awareness of what you have and what you are giving or not giving. Act accordingly. And you know what that would be. It's entirely up to you. You get to decide in good conscience. It's that simple. Knowing what you know. Jesus came. This is what you have. This is what I'm giving. What do I do now? Four simple questions. That's the response to this biblical idea of giving. If you've got a pen, it's worth writing those things down. You can take them home, make it a matter of prayer. If you're married, discuss it with your spouse. But Christianity and spiritual growth in our relationship with God is not merely a matter of emotion or of our internal posture, because all that we are and feel will express itself outwardly in action, in visible ways. And giving is one of those things. Your actions and attitude toward money, though, is a very spiritual issue. Jesus frequently talked about money because he knew that money was and is the chief rival for God for first place in our hearts. And in our culture, you know, you know that that is the case. And maybe it is for you as well. As I said earlier, generosity breaks the hold of greed. So treat money as a spiritual issue and order your behavior accordingly. Now we're going to take the offering now, here at the end of the service. And we're doing it not because I'm trying to manipulate you now into giving more than you normally would on another week, but because by taking the offering now, it does two things. It gives you a few minutes just to reflect on this rather than rushing out into the foyer and having your conversations and sort of letting, letting it drift out of your minds immediately. So a few minutes to think about it. And secondly, it gives you a tangible reminder of what this is all about. This is like, this is its own illustration of the message this morning. So we're going to take the offering. The ushers are going to come forward and we will receive the offering at this point. And then we will close our service. So ushers, why don't you come forward. We'll receive our offering.